Our hope is that all things will point us to Christ and the events that we uh, have at Friendship. This keeps, there we go. The, <laughs> the events that we have at Friendship are uh, purposeful in leading us into a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with one another and with Christ. And because that is true, that our desire is to see Christ at work in the things that we do and say, we also want to pause today as we reflect on Memorial Day. Memorial Day was initially uh, done during the Civil War days as a decoration of cemeteries and specifically grave sites of those who gave their life during the Civil War. That practice continued, of course, through World War I and World War II and, and additional conflicts. Those who were willing to give their life that we could have freedom and life. And so we're going to take just a moment and thank the Lord for those who would ultimately pay the, the ultimate sacrifice in giving their life that we could have freedom. And we also want to pause and thank the Lord, the one who was willing to come and give his life that we could ultimately have freedom. So we're going to take just a few moments and pause before the Lord before we go into the text today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for all things because in all things we can point to you. We can see you at work in the good and in what we perceive initially as the bad. We see that ultimately you are extending life to us and that you are the one who ultimately gave your life for us. We also recognize, especially this day, that there are those who have gone before us, those who were willing to pay the ultimate price, their life, that we could have freedoms that we experience here in the United States. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that, and we praise you for that. And so today, Lord, I, I do pray that you would give us a tenderness to you, an ability to see your word and respond in faith to you in all things. For it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. We're going to read from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. Would you stand with me as I read through this passage? Of course, I would encourage you to look in your own Bibles uh, as we go through this. Of course, the scripture is available up on the screens as well. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they, they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But... 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and he rejected and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. The word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you, O Lord, that you are good. We praise you and ask that you would help us to see things clearly, O Lord, that we would know who you are and that we would set our minds on the things of God. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, it is great to be up here opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, For those who don't know, my name is Pastor Jason. I'm the Adult Ministries Pastor at Friendship Church, and it's uh, been a pleasure to uh, plug in, jump in here at Friendship. I think it's been like seven or eight months now, and uh, it feels like home. I mean, I was just singing, uh, worshiping with you this morning before uh, Pastor Kenny and I came out here, and it just it just felt, oh yeah, this feels comfortable, this feels right. So thank you for welcoming me and my family in and allowing us to be a part of this community. It's been such an encouragement for us, and I pray that God's Word would encourage and, and sharpen us this morning as well as we finish our Mark series, uh, or this installment of the Mark series, Open Your Eyes. We've been looking at Jesus revealing his identity and revealing his authority to the disciples and what that means, how that impacts what it means to follow Jesus, how it impacts our lives. And so here, here's kind of a natural uh, middle point or breaking point in Mark's gospel is this passage. It's kind of a good uh, time for us to break, go into another series and come back to it. Because at this point, what we just read... Um, For any of you geography buffs, uh, the disciples and Jesus find themselves kind of the furthest north of Jerusalem that they will be in Mark's gospel. And it's from this point on, uh, after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, it's from this point on that they will take a direct route straight south all the way to Jerusalem. And so Mark kind of set it up in this way to go, yes, Jesus is the Christ. 
This is his identity. When Peter confesses him to be the Christ here, this is the first time that a human being in the Gospel of Mark has identified Jesus as the Christ. And from that point on then, Mark is trying to get us to Jerusalem so that Jesus can fulfill his role as the Messiah. So that's what's going on this morning as we jump into this passage. And what we're really going to learn this morning, what we're going to focus in on, is that greater clarity about who Christ is allows for greater commitment to his purposes. So greater clarity about who Christ is allows for greater commitment to his purposes. That's what we see playing out here in this dialogue and in what happens between Jesus and the disciples and the crowd here. And so we're going to talk about this by answering kind of two main questions that this text brings up for us. These are the two questions that we're going to be thinking about this morning. The first is this, is your faith bringing progressive clarity to who Jesus really is? And the second is, uh, is that clarity translating to a deeper commitment to follow Jesus? Okay, because, yeah, gaining clarity is great, but, it, but if, it, if it just stays there, if it's, oh, I, get, I know a little bit more, uh, it doesn't translate to a greater commitment, uh, does the clarity really do us any good? I don't think it does. And so, does that clarity that we gain lead to a greater commitment in following Jesus? And so, we'll, we'll start on that first question. Is your faith bringing pro- progressive clarity to who Jesus is? Really is. We see this in uh, Mark 8, chapters 22, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. And uh, we'll, we'll look there as we think about that question. And uh, this section, I've kind of broken it up into three parts. We kind of have this object lesson with a blind man being healed. And then we see uh, that the disciples take an amazing step towards clarity about who Christ is. But then right after that, we also see that there's still more clarity yet that the disciples need. So object lesson, uh, more clarity uh, that the disciples have, but, but still a need for clarity. And so let's start in uh, verse 22 as we see a real-life object lesson. And, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to read that for us again. I know that we just read it, but uh, God's words are more powerful than mine. And so I'd rather uh, Mark tell this story than myself. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Uh, First off, ew. (laughs) What? Second off, what? Walking trees? Like, and finally, what's what's going on here? Did Jesus just have kind of a misfire with his, with his magic healing powers. It's like, yep, oops, I gave you your vision, but it, it's just trees now. Oh, oops, uh, did that one wrong. It can't be that Jesus made a mistake. It can't be that he wasn't able. 
Uh, it must be that Jesus is doing something intentional here. There's a lot of things that he's doing intentionally. We can't dig into all of it. I mean, you can look at uh, some of the Greco-Roman culture of healers and, and the healing power of their saliva, and you can look at some stories that parallel this of people receiving partial healing and uh, associated with seeing trees, and you could dive into that, but, but what Jesus, it seems like, uh, is doing here and what Mark is doing with this story is he's giving us a real-life object lesson for, for the disciples, and not just the disciples, but for us as well. That, that you can have partial clarity about who Jesus is, uh, but what we want is progressive clarity. We want to be able to say, yes, Lord, I see, I understand, but I need more from you, and then receive that so that we can have full clarity from the Lord. And that's what the Christian life is. It's just constantly, oh, I think I got it, I think I'm seeing it, and Jesus coming in and saying, well, no, you don't. Here's some more saliva, here's some more spit, and, and there you go. Now you can see more clearly. We have every reason to believe that this story really happened. So I'm telling us this is an object lesson. At the same time, this story happened. Those, Those are both true. But it perfectly exemplifies the disciples in Mark it perfect, perfectly exemplifies us. Just before this, if you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 18, you see that Jesus calls the disciples out for their spiritual blindness. He uses the phrase that their eyes are closed, that they can't see. But what we start to see in this gospel is that the disciples are starting to get it. They're starting to understand. And what's going to happen is they're going to be healed in stages from their spiritual blindness. We're, gonna, we're about to see that Peter gets it. The disciples get it, that he's the Messiah but they also don't know what that means. And throughout the rest of the gospel, they still need this healing. And they, they won't actually fully get it until the resurrection, until Jesus appears to them after his death and resurrection. It's this progressive clarity that's outlined here uh, at the beginning of, uh, of our section. This falls into a larger section in Mark as well, where this kind of starts the larger section. Uh, and, and in this section, we kind of get uh, stories like this somewhat repeated. And we have this partial healing of the blindness uh, to start this. And then Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Messiah. He's going to predict what's going to happen to him. That's going to happen three times. And then at the end of chapter 10, it's going to happen again. Uh, and, and then right after that, Jesus is once again going to heal a blind man. So you kind of have bookended Jesus healing the blind. And in the middle of that, him teaching about the fact that he is the Messiah and what that means, that he's going to suffer. And so that's what Mark's doing here. Um, And it it brings up this question for us, though. Is your faith bringing progressive clarity to who Jesus really is? To be quite frank, none of us have arrived in our faith. Uh, I was just, last week I had the opportunity over at Prior Lake to be with uh, the kids' ministry, the fourth and fifth graders there, and they did ask a pastor, and they asked me all these really hard and difficult questions. And I was just like, uh, well, I hope it's good for you to see that, that a pastor can't give you perfect answers for all these because I don't, I don't know. Um, but I also told them that there was a guy in church history named Anselm, and he had this, um, he had this quote or this phrase that's attributed to him, uh, that he says that we have faith-seeking understanding. 
Uh, and, and again, that, that gets back to this progressive clarity of, of, yes, we trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. But man, I pray that day by day, he's revealing to us more and more of what that means. This faith that's seeking understanding. Not a faith that says, I've arrived, I've got it all. But a faith that says, Jesus, there are ways that I'm blind. I'm seeing things like trees. Can, can you heal me? Can you, can you show me where I'm misseeing and misreading you? Is your faith bringing progressive clarity to who Jesus really is? As we read on uh, in, in verses 27 to 30, look at how the disciples take a major step towards clarity in this story. Starting there in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Do you see this major step towards clarity the disciples take? I mentioned this already. This is the first time a human being has attributed this Messiah. That's what Christ means. Christ is the uh, Hebrew translated to Greek of Messiah, the, the Christ, the promised king, the one that God said would come and, re, and restore Israel. Peter makes this confession and the disciples agree with him. People, Peter and the disciples are saying, you are the promised righteous king. We can agree with Peter, right? For one of the first times in the gospels, we can say, yeah, the disciples, they got it, right? Let's give them a round of applause because it does not happen very often. Woo. Nailed it. Other people can't make sense of who he is. Who, who do people say am I? He's John the Baptist. Or he's, uh, he's, he's a reincarnation or, or carrying on the spirit of, of Elijah or carrying on the spirit of, of one of the prophets. And Peter says, no, we, we're starting to see Jesus. We're starting to see who you are. You're more than a rabbi. You're more than a prophet. You know, I was raised in a family that was quite involved with church. Uh, we were going to Awana every Wednesday and hyper-involved on Sunday mornings. And the church was a really gospel-preaching great church there. And my faith developed in stages, kind of just developed over time. But there were moments of breakthrough that I can vividly remember. I was in high school. I was out on a golf course with my best friend. And it kind of just hit us almost at the same time that following Jesus meant that he gets it all and that he's Lord of everything. Up to that point, we kind of had our, uh, our group of friends and, and we kind of acted one way over there and we kind of had our church friends and we kind of acted this way over there and we had our family lives and our school lives and our sports lives and uh, that the, the church life was just one facet of who we were, and, and, and there wasn't really much overlap with anything else. And it just hit us on that golf course of, that's not right. It's all or nothing. Like, Jesus has to be the center, or, or what's the point? See, that, that was a major, it's, it was somewhat of a similar revelation that Peter had here, where he's Lord, he's Messiah, he's the king with all authority. That was a major step in clarity for me that the Lord gave but God still had work to do in me, and he still does have work to do in me. 
And that's what we see in the next verses in Mark, that there's still work to be done. That although there's a major step towards clarity, there's still a major need for clarity here, okay? Coming on the heels of this awesome confession that Peter made. By the way, Caesarea Philippi uh, set up for Augustus, who was a, a Roman emperor who basically claimed to be God. And so for Peter to say, no, actually, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are God on earth, uh, in Caesarea Philippi is, is massive. He's rejecting what the culture says, and he's accepting what God says. Yet a few verses later, here's what happens. Verses 31 to 33. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. I mean, Peter just hit a home run. Like, who am I? You're the Christ. He got the identity, but then he missed what the role means. I mean, this is like Peter, he's at the plate knocks it out of the park, watches it sail, and then goes to trot around the bases. And, and the moment he takes a step, his, uh, his cleat gets caught in his lace and he just face plants. And there he lays with a broken nose. <laughs> he missed what that role meant. He got it. Yeah, Jesus, you're the Christ. Ah, but he set his mind on earthly things. Jesus, you're the Christ, and this is what that means. Right, Jesus, you're the Christ, and that means that you are going to come and you are going to restore the kingdom physically here on earth. You're going to overthrow the Roman Empire, and, and Israel's going to be Israel again. That's what that means, right, Jesus? There's no way you're going to die. I mean, and Peter had all of this literature surrounding him and all the, all the rabbis and, and Second Temple Judaism that had talked about what the Messiah is going to do and what the Messiah is going to look like. It's tough to fault him. Because he had been told his whole life what the Messiah was going to do. But there was this wrong understanding that the Messiah was going to be um, uh, really a kingdom of earth political animal who reestablished the kingdom here on earth. And, and it had lost the spiritual side and, and really what God had always pointed to when he told David that his son would sit on the throne for forever and that that he's talking about eternally in the kingdom of heaven. So Peter missed it. Jesus says, you are viewing me through a worldly perspective and you need to view me and understand me through a godly standpoint. When you read through the Gospels, you get this sense that each author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each author kind of has... Uh, what they would present as the godly view of Jesus. And the whole point of the Gospels is for the author, God, through these uh, human authors to present what the right viewpoint of Jesus is. And that's what's been happening in Mark. 
We've been shown time after time that he has authority over all these different things. And Mark is presenting Jesus in a way that he invites us to agree with that. Mark invites us to say, yes, Jesus has his authority. Yes, this is who Jesus is. And so here uh, we have this turning point where it goes from, yes, he's the Messiah. We agree with that. And now God's going to work out and say, this is what that means. Be careful lest you take your own kingdom and your own priorities and the own things that you care about and your own interests and you try to superimpose them onto Jesus and make him a Messiah of your own making. Allow the Gospels and allow God through his word to describe who Jesus is and what that means. Let God dictate that. Let's not act like Peter and bring our own understandings to it and tell God this is what you must do because this is audacious what Peter does. Remove the fact that it's Jesus and it's audacious enough. Jesus was his rabbi. Your rabbi tells you what to do and you you listen. (laughs) I mean, that's why you're following him. And that's the language used here. When Jesus calls the disciples, he says, follow after me. And he's going to say that shortly after here in his call to discipleship. When he tells Peter, get behind me, it's the same phrase. It just changes the verb. He says, get back behind me, back where you belong. Don't go in front of me and try to tell me who I am or what I'm doing. You're the disciple. I'm the rabbi. Now on top of it, it's Jesus. It's it's God in the flesh. And so it's hyper audacious for, for Peter to do something like this. But he does it because he's already committed to his view. He's already committed. He thinks that he knows. How often do we come to God thinking that we know? And then when he doesn't answer the way that we want him to, we reject it or we we reinterpret it so that it fits what we want. Well, then we look like Peter getting in front of Jesus and trying to rebuke him. Jesus calls him Satan. He's not actually calling him Satan. Peter wasn't possessed by Satan. He was just alluding to the fact that, um, man, he's he's doing something similar to what the the tempter did uh, when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness. When the tempter was trying to get Jesus to deviate from the God-given plan. From God's will. And that's what Peter is doing here. Jesus says, I gotta go die. I gotta be crucified. And Peter's going, No, you don't. If I had the mission of Jesus and I knew I gotta go die for a group of people that hate me, I'd have really open ears to somebody coming to me and saying, No, Jason, you got it wrong. Actually, this is what you should do. And so for Jesus to to call Peter Satan, he's saying, stop making me try to deviate from God's will. Submit yourself to God's will because that's what I'm doing. Jesus says it's necessary that the Son of Man may do these things. That's that's often used in the Gospels as a divine necessity. It is divinely ordained that this is what I'm going to do. Peter, get back behind me. Submit yourself, submit your will to me. Jesus is telling us, you don't dictate 
who I am and what I do, God does. And Mark is inviting us to examine our hearts and to receive the truth that God dictates how we think, how we view the world. God dictates how we act, how we spend our free time, how we approach our relationships, how we engage on social media. God dictates those things. Peter demonstrates our constant need to turn back to God and ask him to dictate those things. And say, God, this is, this is what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm seeing trees. If I'm seeing trees, can you heal that blindness? Another major breakthrough I had in my faith was in college. I was involved with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now, now referred to as Crew. And we were in Panama City Beach, Florida, beautiful setting, out there sharing the gospel with a bunch of people there for spring break, a bunch of college students there. And I remember having this conversation with somebody where I was explaining what grace was, where I'm getting what I don't deserve, and, and God is just giving it to me for free and for free. And, and um, it was a good conversation, and we got to pray with them, and then we left the conversation, and I was talking with the, the person I was sharing with, and we, we kind of started praying for the people that they would, uh, you know, really, the, my heart was, man, I really want them to understand grace. And then it hit me. I was like, oh, I, I need to understand grace. I needed to hear that more than that person did. Because what I did was I, I took what I was brought up with, um, a, a really good work ethic in my family, um, and, and, you know, the, the cultural, you, you get what you you earn what you get. Like you, you, you got to earn it. You got to work for it. I was taking that. And though, yes, I had made this decision to make uh, Christ the center and the Lord of my life in high school, I was operating out of this, okay, but I got to try really hard. And I got to work really hard. And I got to do enough for the Lord. And you know what? I don't know if you ever tried that before. That's exhausting. Oh, my goodness. That is exhausting. And in that moment, I was healed. I was healed from that blindness. That blindness had caused this wedge. That blindness had caused this exhaustion in my life, this, this desperation, this never measuring up enough. It had caused this in my life. And Jesus took a little more saliva, rubbed a little bit more, and the trees were gone. I could see clearly. He brought progressive healing to my spiritual blindness. And from that day on, I have striven to walk in God's grace. And there are times where I get off of that and don't realize it. And again, Christ brings me back. There's a progressive nature to our salvation, to our understanding, to seeing Jesus clearly. And there's an antidote when we don't see him clearly that we see in this passage. And the antidote is this, setting our minds on heavenly things, on things that are above. We see this here in Mark 8.33 at the end of this uh, story of Peter rebuking Jesus. Where Peter says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, you're viewing me through this worldly standpoint. In the book of Colossians, if you read there... 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we, what we see there is that setting our minds on heavenly things, it's kind of this abstract concept. What it really means, it's not this like, get yourself into philosophy and make sure you're read up on theology. That's not what setting your mind on heavenly things really means. What it means in the imagery that Paul uses in Colossians is you are taking what God says is true about the world, uh, what he's revealed divinely from the heavenlies, and you are bringing those realities and truths down to earth. That's what setting our mind on things above means. It's not this philosophical, transcendent type of thing where we transcend reality or where we transcend the material and, and you're all spiritual, okay? No, that's not what setting your mind uh, on things above means. Setting your mind on things above means taking what God has shown us, what he's revealed to us, bringing it down so that it can, it can bear fruit in our lives here and now, here on earth. Set your mind on things that are above is what Paul says, and that's what Peter implies, or that's what Jesus implies here to Peter Stop viewing me through the world. Stop viewing me through that lens. Stop bringing your preconceived notions to me. And receive my word. Receive my revelation. That's why we've been asking this first question today. Is your faith bringing progressive clarity to who Jesus really is? Are you trying to determine what his role is in your life? Or are you allowing God through his word to determine what his role is in your life? So a question that comes out of that is, are there ways that you have or currently are seeing Jesus unclearly? Taking what I think he should be and trying to make him fit that mold. And I want us to just sit on this question for a few moments here. I want, I want you to really engage with this, and I'll give you a few prompts that may help thinking about this. Some of us may view Jesus as a vending machine. I'm going to go and, and pick and choose the things that I want. C1, Butterfinger, looks real good. All right? Some of us see him as a self-helper. I can go to Jesus and I can tell him, this is who I aspire to be. These are my goals, Jesus. This is what I want to do. And Jesus will help me unleash my potential. Or we treat him as Peter and the disciples were a sort of viewing him as a, as a political tool. Now, Jesus was a political person. Yes, he engaged in the politics of his world. But we can treat him sometimes as a political tool. And so we take our political commitments and try to make Jesus serve those commitments when it should be the other way around. And that line can get grayed and fuzzy really fast. The real question is this. Are you viewing Jesus the way you want him to be? Or are you letting God and his word dictate who Jesus is and what that means? And if you go through a long enough season of time where something hasn't been tweaked or changed in your view of Jesus, I feel like the longer you go on, the more you should be concerned. The Apostle Paul says not even he himself had arrived. Are we constantly approaching the Lord with humility and praying the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, 
Am I viewing you or treating you in ways that are of the world and not what you have shown yourself to be? I'm going to take that one step further. The second question this morning is much shorter than the first question. We are way, way beyond the halfway point here. And the reason it's shorter is because the, the last part of this passage is kind of this punch. It just hits us. And I don't want to over-explain it. I just want it to hit us. I just want to be punched by it. Because the next question to ask is, is the clarity that we're receiving from God and His Word, is that translating to a deeper commitment to follow Jesus? Because if our minds are set on worldly things, we cannot receive this teaching from Jesus. If we are treating Jesus the way that we want Him to be, then what He's about to say about commitment to Him, we won't receive We'll either write it off as, no, not going to do that, or, or we'll say, oh, yeah, I'm doing that because Jesus is serving my purposes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm committed to him. Or we'll, we'll figure out some way that we don't need to f- take these words literally. Look at what Jesus says about commitment. And these words come after he has given us the object lesson of clarity and come after he has clarified who he is and what that means. These words of what it means to be committed to Jesus, follow. Mark 8, 34 to 38, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, we spent so much time talking about seeing Jesus clearly And through God's lens, not our own. Because if our minds are not set the way that God needs our minds to be set, we won't receive this teaching. This is a high, high calling. See, if Jesus is the vending machine, this whole dying to self thing, I'm just going to leave that part in the vending machine. That doesn't look good to me. You can keep that part. I'm not buying it. If, if, if he's given me health and wealth or if he's my self-helper, then, then of course I'm not going to deny myself. Jesus is serving me. Why would I deny myself? I'm going to indulge myself. That's why clarity matters. That's why knowing who Jesus is matters. That's why allowing God's word to form what we think matters. Yeah, it's hard to commit to Jesus this way, but it's impossible to commit to him this way if we don't view him the way that God views him, if we don't allow God to transform our worldview. Jesus says we must deny ourselves. What he didn't say was deny something to yourself. There's a difference. 
Denying something to yourself is less of a commitment. It falls under denying yourself. But, oh, I'm going to give up Netflix for a month. I'm denying myself. I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. I'm denying myself. Sort of. That's a facet of it. But he says deny yourself. Deny your actual self. Your purposes are now formed by God's purposes. Your interests are now formed by God's interests. Your values are now formed by God's values. God dictates and determines my calendar. It's yours, God. You determine how I spend my free time. You determine how I interact on social media. You determine what I value. You determine how I spend my money. Jesus has called us to deny our very selves. And you know what? This flies directly in the face of the culture that we live in. Yeah, it's really easy to look maybe at uh, the sexual revolution and say, yeah, look, people are trying to choose their genders. Like, that's not denying them, you know, it's indulging in myself and I get to choose and it's autonomous. Yeah, it's easy to look at that as an example, but church, it happens within our own thinking and within our churches as well. That we bring this idea of Jesus, this is what you need to look like. And Jesus, this is what my faith is going to look like. And Jesus, when you say deny yourself, you can't mean that I need to give up this. You can't mean that I need to give up that. You just can't mean that, Jesus. Because I get to determine how I live. And as long as what I determine how I live falls within what God says isn't sinful, then, then I'm good to go. Huh? Jesus' call here is to deny your very self. Man, are you ready to say, I don't have autonomy, I don't have freedom to choose, Jesus can choose? That's a tough thing to do. And he also says, pick up your cross. Literally, be ready and willing to physically die. Yes, that also means metaphorically dying to different things in our lives, dying to sins and temptations and other things in our lives. But most importantly and most clearly here, be ready and willing to, to, to die, to physically die, to, to give ourselves up for Jesus. That's a commitment that we won't make if Jesus is made in our own image. That's a commitment that we won't make if we're not allowing God to transform how we see Jesus. We need to be healed of our blindness and progressively, day by day, allow Jesus to give us a kingdom view of the world instead of an earthly view. And as we do that, our capacity to fully commit to Jesus will grow and grow. So that leaves us with just some uh, questions of reflection. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave, uh, there's a set here and then there's a set afterwards. I'm going to leave them up uh, as we transition into communion. But here are some of those questions. Are there things that you are asking God to do out of a mindset on the world attitude? Are there things you desire in life out of a mindset on the world attitude? Are there sin or patterns that you are holding on to? Are you willing to experience persecution and hardship for the sake of Jesus? As you ask those questions, 
in reflection. Where the rubber hits the road is, is there an area where you need to repent of not seeing Jesus clearly, of, of trying to form him into what you already believe or think? Or is there a, yeah, there, I'm, miss, I'm missing on denying myself. Uh, is there an area of repentance that's needed? And as we transition to communion and the worship team comes out, this is a great time to sit and reflect on that as we prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord. Because if there is, if there is a need for repentance, communion is the place where we're reminded that Jesus has paid the price for this, that Jesus is the healer, and that he sticks it through with us. Despite our spiritual blindness, he wants us to see clearly, and he wants us to get back behind him and follow him as he wanted his disciples to do the same. So in a moment, the, the band is going to play a song for us to uh, do whatever we need to do, whether that's continue to reflect and pray or stand and worship. But at some point during the song, um, find your way over to one of the tables where we've got communion being served and grab those elements and bring them back to your chair with you. Um, and before Pastor Kenny comes up and leads us, make sure that you've done that work in your heart before the Lord. To first off, confess if you need to confess, then receive that forgiveness from the Lord and allow him to dictate what you believe about Jesus and what you need to do. I'd love to just pray for us in that. Jesus, we confess how often we take our own little kingdoms, our own interests, our own values, the things that we care about and we try to make you look like that. God, we don't want to do that. We, God, we, together we acknowledge and recognize that you are good, that your ways are good, that your purposes are far greater than our purposes. We thank you, Jesus, that at the cross we receive forgiveness. And at the cross and through your resurrection, we see how much greater your ways are than our ways. As we see that and behold that, would you call us to a deeper level of commitment? Would you strengthen us to die to ourselves and live for your purposes and for the gospel? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.